This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about how beavers can help in stream restoration. I've visited thousands and thousands of beaver dams, and I still am surprised. I shouldn't be at this point. Still, I'll show up to a place maybe I've visited 20 times, and then the beaver's done something slightly different, right? And it's it's just cool. It's really it's really inspiring. We can get involved, and the solution isn't just about us. The solution is about working together with others and work with nature and really kind of getting out of its way. It's kind of a fun, fun story. That's Joe Wheaton, professor of riverscapes in the Department of Watershed Sciences at Utah State University. Joe is a restoration practitioner and part owner of a company that helps beavers help us make riverscapes better. We begin with Joe explaining what is meant by the word riverscape. Riverscapes is a convenient shorthand because it's like, do I say river or stream? You know, sort of a size thing like rivers and streams. Do I say like the rivers and their floodplains or and their riparian areas and their associated wetlands? There are riverscapes like in gorges or in canyons where it really is just a channel and bedrock walls, right? But there are so many more riverscapes where there's this space that the channel would interact with. Our definition of a riverscape, these are just the parts of the landscape that could plausibly flood by these stream channels. What we see today in too many of our riverscapes is just a remnant of what they can be, and and certainly what once was there. There tends to be a much broader valley bottom in which these things could adjust and and flood. And we think of flooding too often as this negative thing, you know, some event that's you know associated with big storms or big snow melt runoff, etc. And a and it's often considered a bad thing, but it's 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 not a bad thing. It's a natural process. And it's fundamental and floodplains, the rest of this riverscape, this space uh, that gets inundated, that's how rivers deal with excess energy. Riverscapes are this portion of the landscape that's not just a line. It's not just a channel. It's not just a ditch. It's it's the part that that channel would be interacting with. So to, to further that, what would you consider or what is meant when you say a structurally starved riverscape? <laughs> rivers have diets. I and mean, the, the very obvious, you know, things that rivers move is water, right? But they move a lot more than water. They move sediment that, you know, they erode and they adjust and in the process build up these landscapes, these these riverscapes, and they move nutrients. And they also move a lot of wood. When we're talking about structure, the structure in these riverscapes, which ironically is the thing that promotes more connectivity of these channels with the rest of that riverscape, it's just wood. It's piles of wood, piles of sticks, uh, piles of organic matter, leaves and stuff that, that accumulate, and beaver dams. So beaver build dams, and this really weird thing can happen where even in the middle of a summer drought at low flow conditions, the riverscape floods, which is just, that doesn't seem right. Like, how could a riverscape flood when it's really hot out? We haven't seen any moisture for, for a long time. And they flood when they have this structure in them. The structure, it just clogs things up. It slows things down. It makes the flow of water 
less efficient. We've managed our riverscapes to drain efficiently. And when we do that, that's the, the old, antiquated, outdated view of flood control. It just turns these things into these dead ditches that just move mass way too fast downstream and increase the likelihood that those will be damaging floodwaters um, when it does move downstream. Whereas if we let it move a little less efficiently through these landscapes, all sorts of wonderful things uh, fall in the wake of that. So structurally starved systems are what we've made of the rest of our riverscapes. We've We've stripped out the wood, we've gotten rid of beavers, we've straightened these things, we've made them efficient drains. The best example, imagine the beautiful concrete line Los Angeles River. That's how we've tried to make so many of our riverscapes look, and it's a dead river. And so ideally, what more structured riverscape would look like would have these periodic floods because there'd be a buildup behind wood piles, et cetera, and it would overflow into other channels and things like that. So water not moving very efficiently, but that's more of a, quote, healthy riverscape. Is that exactly Okay. Yeah. I think you've kind of alluded to this, but what caused a lot of these riverscapes to become structurally starved? Well, it, it starts in in this country um, and, and North America with why we really came here in big numbers and uh, why Europeans came and, you know, explored and settled North America. And, you know, the myth that it was Christopher Columbus in search of gold, I mean, they didn't find much. It was the fur trade and beaver pelts were worth far more than gold. There's a whole long history of various insults that lead to you know why our rivers are structurally starved today but it starts with the fur trade and the trapping of beaver to sell the pelts which had really good felting qualities and to make top hats and fashion and top hats for or, and, and the hats for the soldiers etc in europe that's what it starts with basically what lags about 10 to 20 years behind our extirpation of beaver as we move west across the continent is settlement, right? And that usually starts with, you know, clearing out forests and we start clearing out forests to get timber, to create open spaces for agriculture. And then we want to move that timber. So we have big log drives, we move it downstream. If there's a bunch of log jams, then it's hard to move those logs. So we straighten things, we blast things out, we clean them. Agriculture comes in, grazing comes in, we overgraze, you know, these 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 systems. You fast forward to the 1950s and we add, you know, post-World War II confidence and arrogance in engineering and, and whatnot and diesel power. And now we, you know, further straightened and make things efficient. And uh, from the 30s to the 80s in this country, we had races between the Bureau of Reclamation and the Army Corps of Engineers to put up as many big dams as you could everywhere to uh, reclaim the West, to wet it up by controlling this water. It's a lot of management of these uh, systems with single purposes in mind. Well, we didn't really start, you know, studying rivers in earnest until rather late in this game. Mm -hmm. And we started making measurements of rivers and looking at all these things. And we were looking at messed up structurally starved systems. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this may be stating the obvious or asking the obvious, but why do we care then about restoring these riverscape ecosystems? 
So a lot of people will jump right to, well, we should just care because they have intrinsic value. We should care for species conservation. You know, we should care about these ecosystems. All of those things are good reasons and true. But more fundamentally, fresh water is key to our survival as mm -hmm. a species. Without it, we are done. And riverscapes are what provision and at more appropriate ra rates sort of slowly release um, this, this, this water off and through the landscape and in the process providing so many, you could call them ecosystem services. Um, so for example, if I am a cattle rancher, if I have a degraded riverscape, it doesn't matter if the cows are down there in the, in the summertime and they got something to drink, they don't have a lot of good things to eat. If I have a wetted up uh, riverscape, now I'm growing really good green groceries and I've got much better forage production, right? And you do that by slowing the flow and getting more structure, you know, back in these systems. If uh, I live in a, in a city and there's, you know, a watershed upstream of me and a river that runs through town, you know, if I have a really efficiently drained, you know, network of, of, of the riverscape above me, well, when I have runoff events, everything piles up all at once really fast and creates really dangerous conditions for flooding when when the, those sort of events come and they're coming with increasing frequency. If I have a healthy riverscape, it attenuates that flow. It knocks the peaks off those floods. It holds on to that water and it puts it into, you know, groundwater recharge and holds on to it in the in the in these riverscapes and 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 really provides resilience to that that disturbance event. And if I have a major catastrophic fire that is working through a, a, a landscape, if I have a desiccated, you know, uh, structurally starved riverscape, the fire just marches right through that thing like there's nothing in its way. Mm -hmm. Whereas if I have a riverscape that is uh, in this healthier condition, that sponge might just be some refugia during the fire for wildlife or livestock, etc. It can also be this really important buffer that can either slow the advance of the fire or in big enough uh, riverscapes, it can actually stop it and act as a break. And so there's there's all sorts of benefits, especially as the climate crisis just is so much more pronounced and in our face. It's about resilience. It's resilience of our ways of life. It's resilience of communities. It's the resilience of these landscapes, of working lands, of ranching, etc. Our survival is tied to the health of these riverscapes. And so how do beavers fit into the equation? of this restoration? <laughs> well, I mean, beavers are where we started, at least in a North American context, by, you know, going through and trapping them to near extinction, led to the transformation of these riverscapes into simpler systems that, that no longer recognizable. Beaver are not the answer or the thing everywhere but it is this charismatic little character which i don't know if i have an irrigation diversion and a canal i mean it's also can be an absolute pain in the neck that i'm fighting you know to make sure it's not flooding my canal or blocking off my you know diversion works or or whatever but in parts of the of the riverscape where the water isn't deep enough on its own that they are safe they manipulate that water depth by building dams. Yeah. And so if I'm on the main stem Colorado River in, say, the Grand Canyon, 
there's a ton of beaver in the Grand Canyon, but they aren't building any dams. They just have a bunch of bank lodges and, you know, they're eking out a fine in existence because there's enough food and the water's deep enough for them to have an underwater entrance to their lodge. Mm. But you get up into tributaries or you get onto side channels outside, let's say, the Grand Canyon on other parts of the Colorado and beaver manipulate those settings to their liking. And they, they do that by building these these amazing dams. And unlike dams that we're used to that, you know, are supposed to last for a really, really long time, you know, these dams are ephemeral. They come and go. And with that coming and going of those dams, we get much more complicated habitat, much more diverse habitat that provides much more niches for a whole range of different species. And so the beaver are not the only example of structural forcing, but they're one of the most compelling and obvious examples. And they're also very relatable. There really just aren't that many species that take and manipulate the environment to their benefit the way way humans and the way beaver do. And it just so happens that when beaver do this, it's also to the benefit of so many other species that co-evolved with them, including ourselves. Joe has a do-it-yourself manual for initiating process-based restoration in structurally starved riverscapes. Affectionately called PBR, this manual features the use of simple, low-cost structural additions, i.e. wood and beaver dams, to riverscapes to mimic functions and initiate specific processes. The main things that the manual does overall is it normalizes these sorts of practices, many of which have been around for for centuries, but it normalizes it into a standard of practice that makes it okay for people to follow, for resource agencies to follow, a cookbook of how to get started on, on, on some of these things. What's actually in there starts with recognizing what healthy riverscapes look like and what unhealthy riverscapes look like and, and trying to understand what those impairments are. Doing your due diligence, I mean, just because you'd structure can work in some riverscapes and, you know, beaver can work in some riverscapes doesn't mean they're the answer everywhere. We need to be responsible and we need to look at what risks might this pose to infrastructure, to incompatible land uses, and be honest about where those things are and, uh, and then look for the places where there is an opportunity to leverage and allow these sorts of processes to do the work for us. And then recognizing that In most of these structurally starved riverscapes, it's not enough to just wait for passive recovery. I mean, it may happen, but it may take centuries to millennia. If we care about the health of these riverscapes in our lifetimes, we don't necessarily have that. Think of our actions, what we can do, throwing sticks and stones in the creek, whether it's making fake beaver dams or making, you know, wood jams. Okay, well, how do you go about that? What what, What do you do? Don't think of it like you're building a statue or some sort of monument to your engineering prowess that you want to last forever. Think of it more like a meal. And you're sort of offering a meal to this system, to to, to the riverscape. You know, how many events is it going to take to get that system to a place where it can prepare its own meals? It doesn't need a hand from us. And so the manual really just sort of lays out the the rationale and then it uh, sort of codifies things that... You know, we have a lot of different federal and state agencies that have adopted the, the the manual. And I mean, it's it's right down to there are reimbursement codes under, you know, the U.S. Farm Bill for these practices. Right? Yeah. So so the, the manual is kind of a, a translation, if you will, of some science or distilling of science and some principles about healthy riverscapes 
into some very practical things that can be done. And it's also helps just sort of normalize this in ways that, you know, practitioners work and in ways that, you know, our, our, our government works. Most of it's common sense, but it's a death grip on the obvious. Yeah. Any changes coming up in the future? Well, there's a, there's a few things. So we have international effort called the Riverscape Consortium. And what we're trying to do is make some of the, the tools that allow, you know, imagining what these different riverscapes could look like. So right now, a lot of those tools were running for, well, the entire Mississippi Basin and the entire rest of the West. And you could zoom into any riverscape, any, you know, little unnamed, tiny little, you know, creek you could jump across off of a big river and have some basic expectations about, well, what might I see there right now? What might be possible? Are beaver something that makes sense here or not? What are the potential risks? These sorts of things. And you know, the expectation management is really important on this stuff. And so having maps and uh, and tools that help people visualize that, we're trying to build a lot of the tools that, you know, can help support some of these decisions. Other things that we're we're doing, do a lot of trainings. You need things to be locally led and, and, and ground up. And one of the exciting things about this is, you know, when it comes to some of the, the things that we do to initiate those processes, I mean, we've got everything from six-year-olds to, you know, 80-year-olds that we get out building these sorts of things together from all walks of life, you know? I mean, politicians, ologists, and professionals that have never built anything in their life to ranchers and farmers and, you know, all, all sorts. And, and so when people get to get down and play with, you know, sticks and stones like you were a little kid and, you know, get muddy and get wet and then see right before their eyes, real change and improvements to, to a riverscape, then they, they own that. So a lot of what we're trying to do through the consortium is really support this idea of community. And then separately, we're working on you know conservation finance mechanisms to really scale up tackling this in a very large, large way and, and, and creating a workforce and jobs that can sustain this sort of effort. You know, one of the neat things about the climate crisis is what's going to be reliable? Increasing frequency of the things we're afraid of, fires, floods, droughts. Well, it turns out, at least on the fire and flood sides, those disturbances are just the sort of inputs of energy that we need to actually improve conditions in a lot of these, these riverscapes. We need the energy of floods. And if we can combine that with getting structure back in these systems, getting beaver back in these systems, we can actually accelerate rates of recovery and improve the health of these riverscapes and the resilience of our communities. I just find this stuff really inspiring. Well, Joe, thanks so much for talking with Science Mob. I've learned a lot about beaver and I have a whole new appreciation for them. <laughs> no problem. To learn more about Joe Wheaton's work, the Riverscapes Consortium, and process-based restoration, visit joewheaton.org. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding, and the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. 
This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.